You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Today, we are continuing in our series through the book of Romans, and we're going to be considering pointedly Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 26. And if you are familiar with this passage of Scripture, you know that there is a lot there and that it is a weighty passage. I texted the elders this week as I was working on sermon prep, acknowledging that this text is full, acknowledging the weight of it, acknowledging the questions and the wrestlings that we all have. These things are not lost on me as a man. They're not lost on me as a pastor. And they're not lost on me as a preacher standing before us today. Preaching this whole section, I mean, sermons could be preached on each of these verses, but preaching this whole section in one sermon is intentional so that we do not get lost and mired in all of the philosophical minutiae that can accompany a passage like this. That would be irresponsible of me, and it would be unhelpful for us. In God's providence, this is just a brief, somewhat of an announcement and an acknowledgement. The first two Wednesdays of every month, we have Theology Night. We have just concluded a section of teaching on covenant theology. This coming month, September, the first two Wednesdays of the month, it seems good to me and to the elders that that would be kind of a standalone lesson, a time of interaction over Romans 9, and some of the things that are contained therein, especially for some who are newer to these truths. And so look forward to that and attend that as you are able. But let me make a few comments at the outset before we look to the text. Whenever our flesh, so I'm talking about our fallen nature, our flesh encounters predestination and election in the scriptures, we are disturbed by a seemingly numberless amount of questions. And we tend, in our flesh, to call God to account. We tend to put him in the dock as though he is the one who stands trial before us. John Calvin wrote these words that are helpful. The predestination of God is indeed, in reality, a labyrinth from which the mind of man can by no means extricate itself. But so unreasonable is the curiosity of man that the more perilous the examination of a subject is, the more boldly he proceeds. So that when predestination is discussed, as he cannot restrain himself within due limits, he immediately, through his rashness, plunges himself, as it were, into the depth of the sea. These things are lofty mysteries. They are above us. Now, does that mean that we should avoid every consideration of predestination or of the doctrine of election? Not at all. By no means, to use Pauline language. Let this, though, be our posture, mine and yours, our posture today as we look at the Scriptures. May this be that we seek to know nothing beyond what Scripture teaches us on the subject. Let this be our posture, that in it all, 
The baseline assumption that we all agree on is that we trust the Lord's character. He is good. And let this be true of us, that we approach the subject with reverence toward God and adoration of him. May it be. So open your Bibles to Romans 9. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 26. Let me give a few brief words of context for our benefit. The chapter begins with Paul expressing his heartfelt, sincere grief for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Don't miss that. It's how the chapter starts. Paul's grieved that his kinsmen according to the flesh, his fellow Israelites, by and large, have rejected Jesus. Israel's rejection of Jesus however, is problematic. It seems to indicate that one of two things is true. One, either God doesn't keep his promises, or two, Jesus is not really the Christ. And so Romans 9 to 11, as we've considered for a few weeks now, should be read as a unit. And Paul, in those chapters, is defending the truthfulness of God's word, the trustworthiness of God's word. He is defending the faithfulness of God And he is making it plain yet again that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The word of God, beloved, has not failed. The Lord has always saved his people. And he has done so completely and only by his own power and his own grace. When it comes to God's purpose of election, his purpose is to save his people, certainly. His purpose is to show that he is a redeemer and that he is the Savior. His purpose is to show that salvation is all of his grace and all of his mercy. His purpose is to show that he alone is the ground of all of his goodness and mercy and grace that he shows to mankind. So with all of that by way of context, let's look to the scriptures. Even though we're going to be looking at 14 to 26 today, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6 because it helps us, draws us in. This is the word of God. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. My plan is to preach this message, three points and a conclusion. And that's somewhat true. There will be some time of explanation and thinking about mercy, justice, and hardening kind of thrown in there. And I'll make that plain when we get to that point. So point one, we're off and running. God is just. Point one, God is just. Amen, someone. Verses 14 through 18. Let's look at it for just a moment. Paul anticipates an objection. He does this often in his writing by the inspiration of the Spirit. Is there injustice on God's part? Now, you understand where this question comes from. So do I. Before Jacob and Esau were born, this is what he had just written. Before Jacob and Esau were born and had not yet done anything good or evil, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. So, is it just for God to love one who has not yet done any good and to hate one who has not yet done any evil? Is God not unjust to show regard to one and pass by another? What does Paul say? His answer, by no means, emphatically, no way. This is massive for us to grasp. The witness of all of Scripture is that the Lord is perfectly just and wise and holy and good and faithful and true. And so, any exercise of His sovereignty, anything that He wills to do, must be in complete accord with the perfection of His character. That is an assumption of the people of God, and it is what the apostle is reasoning. Surely, it is a grave and sad thing that we, as fallen human beings, are more inclined to charge God with unrighteousness than we are to blame ourselves for our blindness. In verses 15 through 18, Paul is going to unpack this assertion that there is no injustice with God. In verses 15 and 16, he speaks specifically 
regarding God's mercy to his elect. Now, when it comes to God's chosen people, God showers them with mercy. Surely, there's no unrighteousness in that, one would think. But the mind of the flesh still finds fault with the Lord and many reasons to grumble against him. Our flesh cannot concede to God the right to show mercy to one and not to another. The only way we're maybe okay with it is if he makes his reasons and his causes for this evident to us in a way that we deem justifiable. In verse 15, notice how Paul grounds his response. He said, by no means is there injustice on God's part. And he appeals solely to what? The witness of the scriptures. He doesn't make philosophical and metaphysical apologies for God as though God needed his defending. It's instructive for us. We want to speak well. We want to rightly represent God's character. I'm aiming today to take great pains to do that, to not misrepresent him. It's been a prayer of mine all week, and I trust is your desire as we sit. At the same time, desiring to speak well and rightly represent God's character, may we never carry ourselves as though the Lord needs to be vindicated by us. May we never act or speak as though we are the just ones making determination as to whether God is just. Paul cites in his appeal to Scripture, Exodus 33, 19. In the context there, that is right in the aftermath of the golden calf incident. The people of Israel have been idolatrous and disobedient, and the Lord has said to Moses, I'm still going to give the people the land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses is asking for the Lord to go with the people to the land. And he intercedes for the people to that end. And the Lord responded to him that he would have mercy on whom he would have mercy and compassion on whom he would have compassion. So the Lord was saying to Moses in as many words, my salvation is free and gracious. I, as the Lord, am a debtor to no one. The Lord was saying that he can and does give his salvation to whom he pleases and that he alone is the ground and source of all of his saving activity. Realize this. All of mankind is guilty. All of mankind is corrupt and lost in Adam. It is only because of God's mercy that any are saved. And the Lord says that he will have mercy as he sees fit according to his will and his wisdom and his goodness. In verse 16, Paul draws an inference. He says, therefore, in light of all of this, our salvation does not depend on us in any way, but on God alone. It doesn't, our salvation does not depend on our will or our effort, on our willing or our running. It depends on God who has mercy. The promise of the covenant of grace and the entirety of the new covenant is this, that God will work effectually for the salvation of his people. 
that God will do it. God will be the one to actualize it, and he will accomplish salvation. And beloved, he has done so. He has. And we are the blessed recipient of the Lord's saving work. That is the message of this text. And it's a good word. That the Lord is the Savior of sinners. He doesn't just make it possible. He does it all. He gives it freely by his grace and his mercy. And we, with gratitude and humility, receive the salvation that the Lord has worked for us. Verse 17 deals now, though, with God's rejection, with his reprobation of the ungodly. Paul again appeals to Exodus, this time chapter 9 and verse 16. He gives the example of Pharaoh. Many are familiar with that account, the ten plagues and God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt. With Pharaoh, the Lord was purposeful. He planned and ordained what occurred. It's clear. With Pharaoh, the Lord acted according to justice. Pharaoh, for his part, acted according to his own sin and pride. He stubbornly strove to resist the power of the Lord. He continually refused to humble himself, and he continually refused to let the people of Israel go. He did what he wanted to do. In all of this, the Lord conveys his wisdom and his plan. He says that even in raising Pharaoh up, he intended to display his power in all the earth. He intended to display and show what Nebuchadnezzar would later say of him. You remember these words from Daniel 4, that the Lord's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He was making that plain through Pharaoh. That's not all. He is demonstrating his power so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you remember a prostitute named Rahab? You remember her. She lived in Jericho. In Joshua chapter 2, when the Israelite spies show up there, do you remember what she said to them? She said, we have heard of what the Lord did in Egypt. And you know what happened. Rahab was grafted in. She and her family saved by the Lord. How? Through Pharaoh and what the Lord did in Egypt. Saved a woman of the city named Rahab and resulted in the salvation of her family. This is the Lord's wisdom and his intentionality and purposefulness in everything that he does. Praise be to his name. We conclude we conclude that all manner of sin exists in mankind. And even the sin of man will result in the glory of God and the salvation of his people. That's our conclusion. Now, I'm going to keep saying this. We cannot fathom the depth of all of this. 
We can't. We cannot understand the depth of all of this in the will and the mind of God. Yet, we trust that what God says is true. We are assured that the judge of all the earth always acts righteously, even though we may not be able to comprehend the entirety of everything that he does. You understand, we are not required to comprehend everything the Lord does. We are called, however, to believe his word, and we do. Verse 18, this is Paul's conclusion, drawn from what he had written in verses 15 to 17. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In electing some and not others, God is not chargeable with injustice. All right, so this is Paul's button. We're going to take a little bit of time and think together. I'm going to seek to explain and unpack three significant things. One, justice, mercy, and then hardening. We're going to talk about this. Justice, mercy, and hardening. We'll begin with God's mercy. Realize this. It's important for our understanding that mercy is a particular display of the grace of God. The mercy that God's people receive was secured for us by Jesus. It is not as though God is just with some and then forgets about his justice in salvation. God's justice is poured out on every sinner, either on the sinner personally or on Jesus in the sinner's place. In no case can a guilty creature deserve mercy. It's important to repeat. In no case can a guilty creature deserve mercy. Talking about deserving mercy is a contradiction in terms because mercy, by definition, is not getting what one deserves. So as soon as we start talking about what we deserve, we are no longer talking about mercy. We're talking about justice. We deserve justice. We have a right to justice. God, in a way that is consistent with his perfect wisdom, gives mercy freely. And this results in injustice for no one. You see, all human beings receive one of two things from the Lord. We either receive justice or we receive mercy. No one receives injustice from the hands of God. God is no doubt sovereign in his judgments, but that word sovereign does not mean arbitrary. God never judges anyone who does not deserve it. When God acts in judgment, his actions are founded on equity. When he acts In judgment, he is being fair. When he acts in mercy, though, his actions are founded solely on his free grace. 
a couple of things that are helpful for us to think, to wrap our minds around. One, we really do not want God to be fair. We don't. We don't want him to be fair. Friends, beloved, if you want fair, find another religion. Christianity is about mercy, which is better than fair. Remember that. Mercy is better than fair. Secondly, we would be helped if we can wrap our minds around this reality. We have become so accustomed to God's mercy that when he acts with justice, we are shocked and offended. We have become so conditioned to his mercy that when he acts with justice, we're shocked and offended. This has always been the case. Think even about King David, 2 Samuel 6. You remember the incident where Uzzah is struck down because he touches the Ark of the Covenant. And how does David react? He's angry. This is always the way that we tend to react to God's justice. It's telling about ourselves that we are not astonished by mercy. We are not shocked by grace. We are shocked and astonished by justice. All right, but what about the fact that the text says that God hardens whomever he wills? What about that? Even in this, God does no injustice to anyone, nor does he act in a way inconsistent with his character. Understand this as well. This is important. God's act, his action in saving and in hardening are not identical. They're not one-to-one. To begin with, track with me. To begin with, Mankind has fallen. We know this. Adam's sin and guilt have been counted to us, and we've inherited his corruption. We do not need help sinning. It's as natural as breathing. We are by nature inclined toward evil, not good. We are by nature lovers of self and haters of God. This is how we come out of the womb. We get in in our mother's milk. We have been given over to every kind of sin and debauchery. You remember Romans 1. The Lord has given mankind over to these things. Fallen people do what fallen people want to do. In hardening Pharaoh, it is not as though God needed to put evil in his mind. There was plenty of that already in Pharaoh's mind because he's wicked like the rest of humanity. God, in hardening sinners, is not the author of evil, nor does he act directly on the hearts of human beings to produce hardness. The Lord is upright, righteous, pure, and holy. And remember the words of James. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So then what is God's hardening work? God hardens whomever he wills. What can we say to this? Several things, in no particular order. When God hardens a sinner, he removes restraint. 
He removes providential restraints that he has placed upon fallen people. People are left then free to act according to their corrupt desires and cravings without restraint. Also, in God's providence, he brings sinners into situations where their sinful passions and desires are exacerbated. They do what they want to do, and the circumstances lend themselves to them indulging that wicked craving of the flesh all the more. Another thing, God in hardening sinners gives people over to the manipulations and the lies of the evil one. Think about Judas and how that went down in the final days of Christ's life on earth. Think of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians that with unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded their mind. Consider Pharaoh. And continuing to think about hardening, consider Pharaoh. In Exodus, the language is used repeatedly that God hardened Pharaoh's heart or that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The language is also used at several points that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There's also 1 Samuel 6, 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? That's a question addressed to the people by Samuel. So how should we understand this? Well, the right and just understanding is that both are true. There is a sense in which God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and there is a sense in which Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now, having said that, nothing like that is ever written in the Scriptures regarding salvation. Nothing. That in one sense, like in reprobation and hardening, in one sense, God hardened Pharaoh, and in another sense, Pharaoh hardened himself. He doubled down. Nothing like that is ever written in the scriptures regarding salvation. That there is a sense in which God saves us, and then there's a sense in which we save ourselves. Nowhere. That there is a sense in which God gives us new hearts, and a sense in which we give ourselves new hearts. Nowhere. That there is a sense in which God made us alive together with Christ and a sense in which we made ourselves alive. Nowhere in the scriptures do we find language like that. Remember this distinction as well. Whereas there is no need for evil to be put into the mind of a fallen human being in order to result in destruction, there is complete need for faith and repentance and love toward God to be put directly in our hearts so that we might be saved. Because none of those things exist in our hearts unless God himself directly puts them there. God is undoubtedly, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, he is undoubtedly sovereign in saving and hardening. The scripture could not be more plain. And his activity in saving and hardening are not identical. Point two, that was a long time getting through point one. Do not be alarmed, we're okay. Point two, God is the creator. So if point one was God is just, point two, God is the creator. Verses 19 to 23. In verse 19, Paul again anticipates an objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
Notice that the objection insinuates that God is the guilty one, not us. You notice that pattern. God is blamed for the sinner's sin. And thereby, God is made out to be cruel to judge sinners. This objection is in full force in our day, but understand that it always has existed. Nothing new under the sun. The mind of man has not changed. In verse 20, Paul rebukes us all in our pride. He's writing and citing from the prophet Isaiah, who wrote similar things a thousand years before, nearly a thousand years before. In my study this week, I read these words by a man named Robert Haldane. I've quoted him before in this, this sermon series. And he wrote about humanity, about mankind. He says, who, all of us, though he be born like a wild donkey's colt and being of yesterday knows nothing, presumes to scan the deep things of God and to find fault with the plan of his government and providence into which angels long to look and even they find it incomprehensible. In other words, we are born like any other creature. We have been here for like five minutes and therefore understand nothing. Yet we presume to examine the infinitely deep things of God and find fault with his plan. His plans, by the way, that angels long to look into and angels themselves cannot understand. Is there anything more presumptuous than for the creature to act as though it, is, it has greater wisdom than the creator? It's what Paul's saying inciting Isaiah. The Spirit of God through Paul is teaching and reminding us all that a mystery which we cannot comprehend ought to be approached with reverence and adoration. In thinking more just about us, we we demand that God pull back the curtain to show us all the reasons, you know, to, to pop the hood Let's look at the engine. Tell me the whys and the wherefores of everything that you're doing, Lord. We, we ask that. We want to know that. We even demand it and think we are privy to that. Show us your mind and your purposes in every detail, and then we would be satisfied. That's how we think. But you know, and I know, that if the Lord did that, his wisdom is too immense. We cannot fathom it all. We can't comprehend it all. Think of the example of Job. Remember, Job is God's child. Job said things that were true of God, and then he wrestled for 30 chapters. And he said things that were wrong in his wrestling. And you remember what happens at the end of the book when God speaks. What does Job conclude after that interchange? He says, I had heard of you. This is God's child. I had heard of you, but now I've seen you, and my mouth is shut, and I repent. Not my mouth is shut as in I'm afraid of you and you're scary, 
But no, my mouth is shut as in I am in awe of you. I thought that I understood, but I had no clue. And so I'm going to stop talking. Saints, that's our posture. We're his beloved children. We thought, we think that we understand, but the more we learn, the more we know, we don't. And so we receive and we listen to the Lord. Verse 21, Paul asks the rhetorical question. It's an allusion to the words of Jeremiah. We are like clay in the potter's hands. God indeed does have a right to do as he sees fit. Paul continues to reason consistently from verse 6 onward. All mankind is represented as a single lump of clay. Yet there ends up being this tremendous difference among them. Some are born again and turn to faith, in faith to Christ and are saved. Others go on trusting themselves and will face God's judgment. What's the difference? God is the difference. God's purposes are the difference. Verses 22 and 3. The point of these verses is this. When it comes to God's reprobation of the ungodly, God, Paul would have us acknowledge God's righteous judgment. And when it comes to God's salvation of his people, Paul would have us marvel at God's mercy. Vessels of wrath are those who are given up and appointed to destruction. And through these, the power of God is displayed. It's true. The wrath against sin that God has is true. His justice is shown. This sobers everyone with eyes to see. It is far better, beloved, to revere God's justice than to scrutinize it. Notice the, put your eyes on verse 23. Notice the in order to right there at the beginning of the verse. That's significant. Through vessels of wrath, wicked sinners doing as they want to do, hardened, all of those things, through vessels of wrath, the depth of God's mercy toward his people shines forth all the more brightly. In all the purposes of God and salvation and judgment, the riches of God's glory are displayed pointedly in vessels of mercy who are just as deserving of judgment as the rest of mankind. John Calvin writes, God's chief praise in glory is in his act of kindness. Amen. You might be thinking, bro, these things are heavy. And I, I can't comprehend all this. You would be right. And I would encourage you with this. Romans 9 to 11, taken as a section, like we've talked about before. How does Paul land? What, what is his conclusion at the end of considering all of these things? Do you remember it? Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be glory forever. Amen. So if that's where you are this morning, you're in a good place. 
You're where the Apostle Paul found himself. You're where I, as your pastor, finds himself. That's point two. Point three, we can trust God's promises. Point three, we can trust God's promises. We're going to look briefly at verses 24 to 26. Remember, Paul is continuing to demonstrate that God's promises can be trusted and that his word hasn't failed. After expressing his grief for his fellow Israelites, Paul had argued that the promise had not been made to Abraham's physical offspring, but to Abraham's spiritual descendants. And here he states who those children of promise are. He states who the spiritual children of Abraham are. That is, you see it in the text, verse 24, even us whom he has called. All of us whom God has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, are children of promise. These same people are the vessels of mercy that Paul had just written up. Their calling is by God's Spirit through His Word, and it's grounded solely in God's grace and mercy. In verses 25 and 26, Paul cites the prophet Hosea. Regarding the the saving and the calling of the Gentiles, Paul cites the Israelite prophet. The calling of the Gentiles should not have been seen as some new surprising thing because the prophets had foretold it. Now, the thoughtful observer is going to say, brother, that's, that's fine, but the words of Hosea when they were originally written were written about the Israelites. That's clear and obvious. It's true. The Lord had declared that they would no longer be his people on account of their wickedness. You remember this in the early chapters of Hosea. But then the Lord said that he would restore some. Here, Paul applies to the Gentiles what was spoken to the Israelites by the prophet. This is appropriate. Consider this. The prophets often wrote to disobedient, unfaithful Israel that they were cut off and far from God. Prophets say this over and over. Yet the prophets would also then point the people to the kingdom of the Christ that was coming, through whom the covenant of grace and the promise of redemption would be established. Christ and his coming was the only comfort for God's people amongst sinful Israel. So it is with the Gentiles, that they were once separated, alienated, having no hope and without God in the world. But now what? In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the, by the blood of Christ. Once you weren't a people, but now in Christ you're God's people. Once you weren't beloved, but now in Christ you are. Once you were called not my people, but now in Christ you're called sons of the living God. It's an appropriate Thing that Paul does. I want to conclude our time this morning by reflecting on a couple of things. The first one will be quite brief. Ask, ask this question. How did you become a Christian in the first place? How did I? How did you become a believer to begin with? How did I? We know from the witness of the scriptures what happened to us in our first father, Adam. That we, as a result of Adam's sin and guilt, were counted with the same 
and were plunged into ruin and misery and death. Dead in our trespasses and sins, inclined toward evil, not good, following the course of the world, enslaved to the evil one, enslaved in bondage to our passions and our craving. So how is it that a dead person in slavery would ever be brought into the realm of life? The answer is that only by God's sovereign grace and mercy that God did it. I know myself and I know my life. You know yourselves and you know your life. We know deep down that it had to be God who's done this. Had to be. It has to be God who's doing this now. And it has to be God who will finish it all. Our salvation, friends, it is a search and rescue operation. And we are not the seekers. Christ is the seeker. And we are the found. We are the rescued. So as you consider even these lofty and even heavy things from Romans 9, when you read these words, know that herein lies my salvation. That God, inexplicable to me, has shown me mercy, has given me life when I was dead. He said, sinner, live. And I lived. I trusted Christ and have been united to him. I decided to follow Jesus. And you might ask, brother, in light of all of this, do our decisions matter? Do we decide to follow Jesus? You better believe we do. The question is not, do we decide to follow Jesus? The question is not, Do we make decisions? The question is, why did we choose what we chose? And underneath our choosing is God's grace. Long before we decided for Jesus, the Lord decided for us. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Predestined in Christ for adoption as sons. It's the only explanation as to why every one of us is not like every other person on the planet pursuing our own pleasure, our own glory, to our own ruin. Thanks be to God for his grace and his mercy. Lastly, in the minutes that we have remaining, I want to reflect with you on the wisdom and the plan of God. The wisdom and the plan of God. And in all of this, I say this to all of us, you tell me if you could have or would have planned it the way that he has. Tell me if you could have or if you would have. The answers to that, of course, are no way could I have fathomed this and no way would I I have done it this way. God creates out of the fountainhead of his goodness and makes man uniquely in his image. He endows man with freedom. He makes man upright, and he makes a covenant with us. We, of course, know that Adam broke the covenant. In Adam, we did too. We went our own way. We did as we wanted to do. And if God were like us, the Bible would be three chapters long. It had been over. 
been over. What does he do? Promises a savior right there. There's one coming who's going to save you, who's going to crush the head of the evil one. And then there is this magnificent mystery of Christ that unfolds in the pages of Scripture thereafter. The establishment of Israel through Abraham, the covenant God made with him and his physical descendants to establish that nation, and the promises that God made to Abraham and his spiritual children. Then, a couple of generations after Abraham, you have a man named Joseph, who you recall was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. We were just talking about Pharaoh and how God did all of those things there. But you remember that the brothers of Joseph did what they wanted to do, and in the aftermath of it all, as they end up in the providence of God coming to Egypt, where Joseph is now vice ruler in need of food, Joseph says to them, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. He later says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Hold on to that. He does this, the Lord does all the time. He gives the law to his people to govern them, but also for the purposes of redemption. First and foremost, to show them his righteous standard and that they couldn't meet it as fallen creatures. He gives them the institutions of the Mosaic Covenant. Most pointedly, the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the day of atonement to teach them, to teach us that life needs to be given for sin, that atonement needs to be made, that we need an intercessor between us and God because we're unholy. We need our sins atoned for and taken away by the great high priest. He made a covenant with David and David's sons after him in which the Davidic kings were to guard right worship. They were to keep the law. They were to represent the people before God. Then there's the language of the prophets regarding this righteous branch that God would raise up for David and regarding this servant of the Lord who would come and die for the sin of his people and who would be their righteousness. And then, after centuries of silence, a man named Joseph and a woman named Mary are betrothed. And there are circumstances that call the marriage into question And an angel says to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You will have a son and you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. At the same time, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, greetings, old favored one, and went on to tell her that you're going to have a son. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign forever. When that baby was eight days old, there was a righteous man named Simeon in the temple. When Jesus was being circumcised, who takes the baby Jesus up in his arms because the Lord had told Simeon, you will see my salvation before you die. So Simeon takes up eight-day-old Jesus of Nazareth and says, I have now seen your salvation not just for the Jews, but as a light for the Gentiles. Your servant can now depart in peace. 30 years later, John the Baptist sees him walking and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. Jesus comes to John and is going to be baptized and says to John, when John is anxious, you should baptize me, Jesus. I shouldn't baptize you. He says, no, it's appropriate that we do this in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled. And then he went into the wilderness and was tempted by the same adversary that tempted our father, Adam. And where Adam fell, Jesus succeeded. In every way that Adam failed, Jesus was victorious. Then he preached a sermon on a mountainside. Just as God had given the law on a mountain, the lawgiver sits on the side of a mountain and preaches the law and says, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He went on to speak of how he came to die for his people. He did many miracles, and the point of those miracles was to prove that he was the Christ. You remember when John the Baptist was in prison, sent disciples to Jesus, hey, are you him, or should we expect another? And Jesus said, you go and tell John what's happened, that the lame are able to walk and the blind receive their sight and the deaf hear. In other words, yes, I'm the Christ. This one died on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem, was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave. His work vindicated. Death defeated. The devil and hell conquered. And all who trust him will be saved to live with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Could you have planned that? Would you have planned it that way? Have you ever considered the wonder of the crucifixion? On the one hand, that the God who made the universe would become a man and die to save us. It's astonishing. On the other hand, have you thought about how the crucifixion came about, the events of it all? You talk about the secret counsel of God, the sovereign will of God, right smack next to human responsibility and wicked people doing what wicked people want to do. Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, he says these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you killed him by the hands of wicked men. Later on, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts chapter 4. The disciples say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. They're praying to God. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wicked people doing what wicked people wanted to do and yet accomplishing everything that God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Oh, that rugged cross, our salvation. The most heinous sin in the history of the world committed by wicked people has brought many sons to glory. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He has saved us, and we can trust him. Let's go to him now in prayer.